Okay, and we are live. I want to welcome everyone to another episode of Arc Chat. A couple of quick technical notes. Uh, my name is Robin Bauer-Kilgo. I will be floating around as your technical person. There is a slight delay, delay as we go up on YouTube. So if you have a question for any of our panelists or any of our co-folks, um, just go ahead. Maybe a few minutes till we answer it. Uh, we will be monitoring the chat box, so feel free to put your questions in there. We will take a look at it as things go on. Also, please subscribe to our YouTube channel, um, ARC's Association of Registrars and Collection Specialists. Whenever we do any of these sessions, uh, you'll get a little indication saying that we're live and you can join in. And just a quick uh, programming note, on May 14th, we're going to be doing a different type of panel, not an ARCS chat, but a really fun uh, live panel with the ARCS Emergency Subcommittee, all about COOPS, Continuity of Operation Plans. So May 14th, 2 p.m. Eastern, join us. And I'm going to go and hand the mic over to one of our other hosts right now. And that'd be me. <laughs> Welcome everyone. Before we get started with introductions, I wanted to share a few housekeeping items with our listeners. Remember that ARCS has compiled a list of resources and materials relating to COVID-19. You can access this information on the ARCS website, as well as make recommendations to add materials and information via the submission button at the top of the page. Also, if you have missed an ARCS chat episode, fear not, uh, you can catch them on our YouTube page, as Robin pointed out as well as subscribe and listen to the podcast wherever you find them on Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, or Spotify. So without further ado, I'm super thrilled for this month's chat as we are honored with the presence of our guests, Jenny Matheson and Chloe Rumsey from The C Word Podcast. These talented individuals are conservators based in the UK, and they have just begun the seventh season of their show this spring. Chatting about a wide range of topics relating to collections care, if you haven't already, go and give the C-Word podcast a listen wherever you find podcasts. Jenny and Chloe, welcome to Arcs Chat. Oh, thanks. Thanks Hi. for having us. So today we're going to kick off this month's chat by delving into all things May Day. And May Day can relate to a lot of different things. Historically, it's a celebration of the coming of spring. Uh, more relevant to us, of course, is the yearly call to action for emergency preparedness. AIC and FAIC, which are acronyms for the American Institute for Conservation and the Foundation for Advancement in Conservation, continue a tradition in the U.S. of dedicating May 1st as a day to prepare. For many of us in the eastern part of the country, that's a direct focus on preparing for hurricane season, which begins on June 1st and runs through November 30th. And if you're like me and come November 1st, you think you're done, you're not. You've got about 29 more days left in that season. So hold tight. Uh, suffice it to say that this year will be like no other as we continue to climb out of a pandemic, but it's still important, if not more so, that we continue to prepare our institutions and collections for both the seen and unforeseen emergencies. So with that, as I mentioned, hurricanes are a big proponent of emergency preparedness planning in the U.S. What are some of the unique focal points of emergency preparedness in the U.K. and Europe? Well, I suppose it's well worth remembering that we're in the UK, which is a tremendously soggy part of the world. So a lot of the things that we worry about are water-based things. So it's a lot of flooding and leaks and that sort of thing. Um, that isn't to say that other things don't apply. We certainly have big storms as well. And um, across Europe, we have a tremendous amount of different things that can happen, you know, everything from earthquakes to hurricanes as well. So, you know, it's, it's all sorts really. But um, in the UK, I think we're really quite focused on either fire or flooding, really. 
Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think I'll add that I don't know how it is uh, in the US, but quite a lot of our heritage buildings and museums are very old um, and they all struggle with funding. Um, So, you know, it might simply be that there's a blocked guttering that come, you know, February, it's blocked, it's still raining, it won't stop for another two or three months and the maintenance hasn't been done to it so I think it might there's a the the water ingress thing isn't just the fact that it rains a hell of a lot it's also that um the bill it takes its toll on the buildings as well mm-hmm. well I could definitely say that a lot in the U.S. is not old <laughs> in comparison <laughs> well, to relative yeah, <laughs> yeah in yeah, comparison yeah. to especially in Florida and, and Robin can probably speak to this as well I don't think we have many wooden structures left in the state except for mm-hmm. like a handful. And of course, when I think of like emergencies that happen in the UK, the ones you hear about, of course, are the very devastating fires that happen. And I think um, maybe some of that's due to the fact that those structures can tend to be made out of wood. And not a lot of that exists, at least in the southern part of the United States, because it just doesn't last. Yeah. It like, hasn't lasted. My, I started out my early career doing archaeology, and I remember thinking I'd come across these, like, great ruins everywhere. And in Florida, there's no ruins. Everything's <laughs> underground, because everything got wet and, like, got destroyed. So we definitely don't need to deal with that down here. Although there is a monastery in Miami, if you know. There mm-hmm. is. And shouts out to St. Augustine, <laughs> which is over in Jamestown. <laughs> so. We've got that. <laughs> Um, I suppose coming from a, because originally I'm from Sweden, which is um, a place that has a tremendous amount of buildings made out of wood. So in comparison, it seems to me that the UK is quite robust in that it's Mm. got a lot of stone and brick buildings. But, you know, that's not to say that still can't be gutted by fire, for example. So, you know, it it is one of these things of, um, you know, sometimes accidents happen and that's the kind of thing that we're trying to plan, plan not for, but mitigate against. So, mm-hmm. well, I mean, to your point, the uh, didn't this week, didn't they, or last week, they make a declaration that the um, fire at the National Museum of Brazil actually was the result of a an air conditioner that uh, caught on fire. Yeah. So yeah. again, it's a maintenance issue mm-hmm. that can have such a yeah. disastrous effect, especially in a building that size. Uh, yeah, absolutely, it's crazy to think, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So. Oh, I, that's surprising. I hadn't heard that. That's surprising and also very frustrating. But you kind of, we're talking about general maintenance here, things that you would, you know, hopefully do or have the funding to maintain to avoid simple things. What are some low cost uh, practices that collections care professionals can implement that can help mitigate risk? One of the things I'm thinking of is I used to work in an institution that had a historic home. And we were fortunate enough to put in a fire suppression system, but in other institutions where they don't have that, oftentimes they would recommend like closing all the doors between the rooms to just mm-hmm. delay the progress of fire. Should that be a concern? Yeah, that's, that's a good one. I mean, obviously if you are lucky to be um, having your emergency services around, you know, long before there's an emergency, then, you know, the fire departments and stuff like that, they're very happy to tell you about stuff like that. So it's really, it's always a really good idea to have um, a site visit by emergency crews and that sort of thing, because they can tell you some really valuable stuff. Um, And that can be anything from, yeah, close these doors or, um, try not to keep paper in this particular bit because you know like this might be where a fire could really you know take off and that sort of stuff like having someone around to just give you some pointers is actually a super duper good way of just preparing um and it 
at least here it definitely isn't something that costs I mean obviously you have to you know make an appointment like the, these guys are busy but um, it's a really really good idea to have a site visit it can really help you make a really really good plan yeah, and I'd say that in terms of actions that we ourselves can take um, sort of on a day-to-day basis, I, I'm quite a fan of just familiarising yourself with the measures that you would have to take in the event, event of, an, of an emergency. So just, you know, where are my, this is the thing we're told to do anyway, obviously, where are my fire extinguishers? Where are my stopcocks in the building? Where do I turn off the electricity if I had to dash into a building at 2am because, you know, there's a huge emergency. Um, Just knowing where things are and knowing where blueprints are and stuff, even if you're new to an institution, go around and have a look at where you might find everything. And it's all, I mean, when we do these plans, we have all the information, but um, I mean, it plays on my mind a bit that I've not read my emergency plan for probably a a year. Uh, And I don't remember where everything is and I don't remember everyone's numbers and they're not in my phone. So that's something that I can do easily to make it easy. If I was to get a call in the middle of the night to just respond I mean, it might be a bit tricky to do now, although quite a fun exercise, actually, if you do it over Zoom or Skype or whatever it is that you use to communicate with your with your colleagues. I love tabletop exercises. They are the most fun ever. <laughs> it is so much fun. Just have like one person think of a scenario with some flashcards or something that only they can see and like then just have everyone sit there with their emergency plans and go, this is the scenario, this is what's happening what do you do? You're first on site. And it's so much fun. You, if you, if you make it a, obviously not a stressful situation, because sometimes, you know, these sorts of exercises, they can be a bit, oh, what if I get it wrong? It's not about that. If the answer isn't easy to find in your emergency plan, then, you know, you need to do something about that. And also it's such a good way of A, getting to know your colleagues and B, getting to know your plan. It's such a good way of finding snags as well. Because sometimes something you think is really obvious, um, like, it might be that, oh yeah, the gloves are in the conservation lab and the kit is here. And people go, how do I get into that room? Um, I'm not sure I've ever been up there. So why would I know where that is? And it's like, that's a really good point. Maybe we need to make that clear. I love exercises like that. They are like, they give me life. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I'm going to make an open call now. Sorry. No, no, no. I was just going to say real quick with the tabletop exercises, the funnest thing on the earth to do is when you create your teams, pick out the, take out the person who everyone looks to for answers. It's yes. like the best thing you can do because then you just kind of watch <laughs> the cards crumble like around you. And if you take that person out, like it's fascinating to watch like what happens. Like sometimes it can be an operations person or a facilities person and you just watch the things go. And also I need a definition. What's a stopcock? No, oh, it's, <laughs> I didn't know that was a, I yeah. need a translator. <laughs> um, it is the tap, essentially the, the tap, the water tap to the building. Mm-hmm. It's usually uh, in a basement gotcha. or like under a sink or something. Gotcha. Water shut off. Very unromantic how we call it. <laughs> oh, oh, is that, I mean, that's more descriptive is. though. You don't need a translator for that though. I like that. I'm going to create a t-shirt with, uh, with that on it. <laughs> I, I wanted to say like, this is a perfect opportunity to ask somebody to create a game that's comparable to maybe cards against humanity for these tabletop <gasps> exercises. So maybe conservators oh. against humanity. Can you um, get on it? Thing. With your drawings. <laughs> oh man. Oh my God. <laughs> like, <laughs> So, um, so yeah, you get, you, 
you draw, oh, okay, you got to take out the facilities person oh. and then, you know, you make this decision. That's a really good idea. So. <laughs> I like well, that. Well, that certainly would make it fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right? <laughs> so, um, yeah, and then the chain of command, maybe we can incorporate them. It's like, oh, the director can't be reached right now. The second in command has to make the call and you're that, that person. <laughs> so. Dun, 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 dun. It's, it's oh. fascinating to see because there's always, always going to be like the alpha folks on your staff, right? The ones who jump in. And then it's also fun to watch them struggle with not jumping in for a good hour because they desperately have all the answers and they won't be allowed to talk. <laughs> but you, you make a good point though, Robin, because everybody should know what to do. In, like your front of house staff, your visitor services, if there's an emergency happening, no matter what it might be, they need to know what their role is, is in it and then what the bigger whole role of the institution is. So they can make decisions for themselves, for their, for their team, if they are leading a team to support their, you know, however the hierarchy is goes into play when you have an emergency to be able to support those staff members as well. And, you know, we're, we're always worrying and think about the collection, but if you have people in your building, you know, human, human life and safety is also a very important factor um, as well. We've got a great uh, crew of people online on the chat, all the way from Los Angeles to London to Canada. Huh. So thank you, everybody, for joining us. So please uh, send us your questions uh, as, as, you, uh, as they come up, and we'll, we're monitoring the chat. Thanks for, for chiming in. Would this be a good time to uh, talk about or ask about what, how do we feel about the non-emergency emergencies? Like the, I've gone into a building, into a room in this building and it's full of mold and it's probably been like that for five years. That's not a, it's raining in emergency. It's not a fire emergency, but it is a, oh no, I've got to get, I've got to deal with this and somehow move all my priorities around, even though it's not one of the traditional situations that y you would be allowed to move your priorities around in. Uh, no, that's still an emergency though, isn't it? I, I you mean, Amanda and I live in the world of mold. <laughs> like it's literally everywhere. <laughs> so, that's the state's slogan. <laughs> it is world of mold. Um, <laughs> Disney's going to do a whole thing. Um, <laughs> Pest infestation mold. would work as well. Exactly. Yeah. I do. I think right. that something we've talked about it in different places is about how like we rate these threats, but they're all threats, mm. right? They're all stuff mm -hmm. that we have to deal yeah, with. So in a perfect world, you'd have an emergency plan that kind of like, candled all this stuff, you know what I mean? But as I've often said in the past two months, and I never thought pandemic was going to be something we'd ever have to deal with. So, you know, it is, it is a, you handle it, I think in a slightly different way though, when you're handling stuff, that's more exactly what you said, the mold's been there for years. So it's like, you know, when can you do it? When's the money to deal with it is the other question. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Damage is occurring, but it's already half occurred already. Mm -hmm. And there's all these other things you've got to deal with. Right, that may be more pressing. Like if you do have a, pe a pest infestation and you have it actively in a collection space or a display space, arguably that would take priority over a room that maybe no one has access to, but that is definitely in, in decline that needs addressing. I'm trying to think because the way our um, emergency plan is set up, and I don't know if this, it's, it varies from institution to institution. So um, chime in if you all have different experiences, but we've basically identified like the top three threats to our institution. Yet we've still included procedures for various um, emergencies. Like for example, if there's like a hazard material spill, that's that emergency process is included in our EMP. Um, but we also have like a whole separate section as, as to how we react in regards to a hurricane, which is, you know, still a, an emergency, but something you can actually kind of plan for. 
which may not be the case in regards to like a tornado or an unforeseen water leak, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not sure if, if other people have that same experience or not with their emergency plans and whether that's really a smart setup in general for an EMP. It's very, because I've been at many different institutions and also occasionally I will just help other places with their emergency plans and stuff. And it really varies. I mean, it's whatever works for you, really. I don't think there's a one size fits all for this sort of thing. Um, some places do like a, where it's almost like a, like a traffic light system. I mean, where there's like an, it's like an amber kind of level and there's like a red level and like that sort of thing where there are different grades of kind of emergencies and like the emergency light would be something more like finding mold or that sort of thing so it would still be encompassed in the plan but it would be a bit more like it's not all guns blazing it's more of a light approach but it still has a procedure so I think it just depends on what kind of works for you but I mean they are all emergencies but as someone pointed out just now on the on the chat that you know mold for example and same with like uh, toxic chemicals it, it's as much a health issue as it is a, a an issue for the objects so you know it's it's you it, it's uh, it's something that you have to deal with in a pretty timely manner and uh, without a doubt and I guess you have to assess the severity of the of the of the problem first and foremost but uh, yeah I mean. It, uh, it definitely requires allocation of funds and uh, immediate attention. And different institutions will be used to different things as well. So if you've got hazardous materials and if you've got hazardous collection, for example, those of asbestos or whatever, um, you're probably going to be more switched on to the idea of you could walk into the store tomorrow and find a huge chunk of asbestos that you hadn't found before. Um, or if you've got a history of a certain type of pest infestation, you're more likely to find it and be used to the idea. That's true. And then I think you're all making a very, you're all speaking to the same point that like you could have a hazardous spill of some kind, but it maybe isn't a major emergency. It's more of a lighter approach because it's contained, you know, people are around it. Maybe it's not anywhere near collections. It's somewhere in like the utility room of an institution. So I, I, I like that approach that you have like various grades of response and then still procedures in general as to how you would react to something one of the things that I'm always worried about is we're in a, a city, our institution, and um, I'm always worried about something outside the museum that will happen that impacts us. Like maybe, um, you know, actually this has happened before. We've had a crazy individual running down the street in St. Pete at night swinging an ax. And like that brought on a whole SWAT team experience. <laughs> oh and like, well, if, welcome to granted Florida. it was 9 p.m. We didn't have, I don't know if they had an event happening, but we could because we do events into the evenings, you know, we're in a downtown mm. location. Um, so what, what do we do in some, in some situation like that where it's the activity that's happening is a bit out of your control, but mm. it's still impacting you as well. I always think about those are it's just we are so focused on weather related emergencies often, at least in Florida, that I worry about not planning for things like that, like actors, active shooter situations or other things like that, which are very much a reality as well. Yeah, um, I mean, I know plenty of institutions over here, they will certainly have, you know, things like um, in, in case of bomb threats, that sort of thing, you know, mm -hmm. what do you do? And I think with all of these things, even though they're very different emergencies, there's kind of a unified approach of kind of, even if it's a chemical spill or um, someone coming in and threatening staff or 
a fire. It's about getting the people safe first and then, and then everything else. So it's kind of, it does follow a logical approach, even though they're very different scenarios. Like there, there are, there is like kind of a, a red line there where you, you can kind of follow, follow the same kind of base procedure and then it branches out from that. I'm right, curious. Oh, go ahead, John. I was just going to say that on some level you're, 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 if you're planning just for the event, you'll not account for all of the other, all the possible events. Right. But if you plan, if you're planning for like, for example, this pandemic, nobody has ever said that they're planning for a pandemic, but you know, most people will have plans for when you can't have access to the museum. How do you uh, prepare the collection or, and, um, and prepare your staff for taking care of things from a distance uh, and how, you know, whether it's foam trees and, uh, you know, designated responsible people to make visits, et cetera. So on some level, it's, it's really about planning for the, the, the situation and not the actual event, right? So, you know, if, if it is a, say a protest, you know, like I used to do a lot of work for private collections in Latin America and Venezuela, for example, with the huge high uh, homicide rate and a, and a tendency for, for protests and street closures and things like that, you know, museums were often sort of under siege. So, you know, that was a fairly predictable and, um, uh, event, but that, that, that could be planned for, uh, for example. So, uh, and, and whose planning is similar to that of a pandemic, uh, maybe not as long term, but you know, no access to the museum and external threats, uh, are, are possible. So, I mean, I've seen, I've seen other people talking about that as well. So, um, as no expert of, <laughs> um, I do feel there's also a flexibility that's necessary in the sort of senior management teams and things because I mean for the most part if we take this pandemic example it wasn't um, a huge surprise that our museums had to close we we saw it coming even if even if it was just a few days the the people that made the decisions really they were planning it for days the days previous so they were they were kind of getting used to the idea um if it's something like a an, an axe attack or active shooter <laughs> is that the phrase then that's a it's a more kind of i suppose it's a um a formula it's a formula event you you know okay well if this happens then we could do this if this happens then we could do this um and if there's a flexibility to, you know, agreeing, well, all right, we'll close the museum then, rather than having to argue that case, then that's important as well. Yeah, I yep. think with all the planning that we tend to do, there always has to be some level of flexibility because like John said, you can't account for everything. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the day, plan is just a plan. It's meant to be um, massaged and changed and turned around to accommodate the situation at hand. I always admire people who can think really fast on their feet because I'm, I'm an individual that has to, has to plan, like literally has to write things down. That entire introduction was absolutely written down. Pauses for laughs and jokes included because I can't, I can't think. I'm I have a piece of paper every time I do mine, so I can't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather just, you know, come across like I know what I'm doing. Rather than oh yeah. Preach. <laughs> do we have any questions in the chat box yet, John? No, I mean, people are chiming in, uh, announcing themselves, but there's not really uh, questions per se. Um, 
at this point. Yeah. But, uh, we've got a, a lot of people there. So, um, definitely, uh, share if there's anything specific or any scenarios you would like to throw at the panel, we can definitely throw that into the chat and work it out. We actually just got one as, as soon as you said that, oh, uh, it's good. from, uh, someone named Cynthia Murphy, who's asking how often you review, uh, your plans. And, uh, and it actually, you know, and I'll add to this that, um, is that what everybody's doing now that they're working from home? <laughs> so, um, yeah. <laughs> so how often do you review your plans? They should be. <laughs> well, I'll toss that to Jenny and Chloe. What are the processes at your institutions? Um, uh, I think we actually look at it annually, to be honest. And then we aim to have an exercise every 18 months, um, which it's kind of funny that they're not in tandem, but that's just how it is right now. Um, but yeah, so ideally then the snags that we'll find at the exercise will go into the next revision um, and feed into the next one, etc. And then I think it's a more frequent review just because, you know, staff changes and it might be that phone numbers have changed for something or um, there's a new person in charge and it just constantly needs to be updated with like the right people and stuff like that. So I think that's why the actual updating of it is more frequent than the necessarily exercises that we do with it. Um, but yeah, so yeah, but we are definitely looking at it now because, you know, we're going to throw in a pandemic one. <laughs> <laughs> Who's in charge of, of, of calling that review and calling for the, the exercises? Um, so that kind of falls to the collections manager um, at the moment. Um, and then, yeah, basically we're like a small team that'll kind of prop up all of that. Obviously everyone's on board. Everyone knows it's a great idea. Everyone's super happy to like do the exercises and all that. Um, and yeah, so, but yeah, it's the collections manager right now. Mm-hmm. I say the same, it's just roughly the same for my institution as well. Um, and when you asked the question, I thought, oh God, I'm going to show myself up here because I don't remember how frequent they're checked. Is it five years? Is it two years? I don't know. But for the most part, that we've been revisiting it because people have changed, staff has changed, situations have changed, addresses even have changed. So it, we're always encouraged to keep on board with it. And, you know, we've got copy in various places and stuff like that. Um, and emergency kits and stuff, some things like, you know, um, safety masks and stuff might go out of date. So they need to be checked as well. Um, so I think it might, the team of my museum is quite a small one as well. So for me, it's the um, collect head of collections and engagement and the director of the museum as well. Um, so everyone does get involved. And again, because we're a small team, we'd all need to be in the know if something was to happen anyway. So everyone is involved. A um, couple, couple other questions that came in. One specifically for Amanda. You mentioned your, um, you had about three top plans for your, uh, for your to prepare for. What are your others? Oh, outside of like the three main threats. Yeah, um, the threats. Yeah. Now I've got to slyly pull up my plan <laughs> so I can look at it and tell you. I want to say that we have something in there for a bomb threat. We have something in there on how to handle hazardous material or like a pathogen. So if someone gets cut and there's bleeding, how to address that. Um, uh, I don't, I think we have something that has to do with like water leaks of some kind. That's like separate from, you know, a hurricane bringing water into the building, but just a genuine leak that's happening in the, in the structure itself. I think those are some of the other big scenarios that are listed in our 
plan that I yeah. can pull it up and. The other, the other question we had was, uh, uh, do you have any advice for collections that are held in offsite storage facilities where you might not have control over the access and the facility itself, but you are responsible for your collections held within? Um, have conversations with the people who do control access. Um, I guess it depends on what the arrangement is. Um, I know that if, I know that if we've had, well, whenever I've been in a situation where that's been the case, it's, I've had to liaise with the people who are in charge of the building, um, and just make sure that I know who the caretakers are, or I know who, who can give access, even if it's the middle of the night. And sometimes that, can be an awkward process because that's people don't always want to tell you that <laughs> they don't they don't want you ringing in the middle of the night um <laughs> but at the same time um so i think oh, try to open up dialogues if you can um and also i'd be curious to see if the overall facility has some sort of emergency plan as well uh, it might be say, yeah. yeah it might be that you you could look at that together um mm-hmm. because and you know you you want people to take take into consideration your needs as well and ask them how often they're updating it as well. Yeah. So, um, and if calling you or your representative from your collection is, um, is part of that. So at what point they do call you and let you know that there's a problem. Yeah. So have they already because, gone in then and like done <laughs> yeah. stuff for us? <laughs> I, 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 w- I worked with in a facility that, um, well, you know, I worked for a collection that kept their stuff in, in a facility. And, you know, I knew that, you know, if the temperature fluctuated outside of the parameters that we gave them, uh, that, you know, they would get a call in the middle of the night and they would go and take care of it, but they wouldn't call me even though I was the, the point person, but I don't need to be called for that per se. But if, you know, water is pouring through from the, the roof, then yeah, I want to know about it. Mm. So what's the threshold? Yeah, yeah, it's worth having that conversation. I think it's interesting um, listening to everyone about um, the responsibility of others. It's a great question because I think people always assume, and maybe even we sometimes assume that if you have a collection store and it's off-site, then it's your building and it's your, you know, your under under your control and all of this. But I don't. Mine certainly isn't. Jenny's isn't, and it sounds like everyone is in the same situation of we have the responsibility, but we don't have the control necessarily. Um, so communication is absolutely key, isn't it? And, and knowing what their protocols are, knowing how, how often they're checked and stuff is such a common issue. I hadn't I thought of it before, actually. I think another thing we have to think about too is really when, when I've helped with emergency plans with any of these things, I've become very good friends with the facilities people because you need to have a team approach when you build these plans. Um, I know I've worked at places where basically we had almost two parallel plans working. The facilities had a plan and we had a plan and we worked alongside each other. Cause I knew with certain things, especially oversized things, sometimes I'd have to have the facilities guys come help us. Right. Just because especially hurricane prep is a good example when we had to move big objects, but also just being in good communications with those guys, because they'll, you know, you both are, worried about the, uh, the, either the institution or your collections or whatever, but they're going to have a breadth of knowledge that you won't have and you'll have a breadth of knowledge they won't have. So being able to work alongside those folks is always really helpful. And they're just good people to be friends with anyway, because they mm-hmm. have really good stories and know where to eat 
too. <laughs> so I have learned like, number one. I know. I'll be like, important thing. <laughs> especially when you're offsite, if you're in a spot that you don't know, they'll be like, well, there's a really good place. And it's like, awesome. Oh yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> It's going to be down some alley you've never seen yeah. before. So you want to know. About <laughs> <Yeah. it. laughs> so, but it is, it's good to have that communication. You don't want to be in a silo of just collections. You want to know mm-hmm. kind of what's going on in the facilities and what's happening. And, and like I said, they might have a- access to pallet jacks and stuff to help you move stuff. Oscillating fans, things like that. So that's something I always try to keep in mind as well. We have a couple uh, other questions uh, coming in. The first one is, uh, would it be acceptable to ask to see their emergency plan where where you're deciding to store? Uh, Oh, yeah. I would think, yeah, you would have to ask that. absolutely. I kind of feel like that's, if you're going to move in somewhere, you definitely should. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's not that different from like requesting a facilities report if you're going to, no, if someone's exactly. trying to borrow something, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Same thing. You shouldn't feel that touchy about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other question was, can you name any other staff who are involved in your EMT, EMP review at your institutions? Oh, um, easily uh, visitor services. So whoever mm-hmm. is in charge of front of house and all of that and the facilities, uh, they're involved um, for us, basically the director is as well. Um, and then me as the conservator, other collection staff, um, also, um, whoever's in charge of education and outreach, because, um, honestly, it's going to have an impact on them as well. So, you know, it's kind of everyone. Oh my God, we have an additional member. Yay. <laughs> okay. working from home. Welcome to our <laughs> Absolutely losing it. Hi. <laughs> This is bad. It's like when the dog comes into the background of a Zoom meeting and I'm like, I've lost all interest in anything we're talking about. It's amazing. As someone who has worked from home for seven years now, eight years, I love how like now it's cool to have your kids and animals walk through. Because before I would be like, stay away. Now I'm just like, awesome. (laughs) Come on in. It's fine. (laughs) Anyway. She had a splinter. Oh no. Usually don't. (laughs) (laughs) Massive, you had the answers today, John. <laughs> yeah, right. Of all times, right? So. I do want to quickly hop back, uh, not to cut you off, Jenny, but um, no. for the question that was asking if it's if it's appropriate to ask the facility mm. what measures they have in place, you could also offer to just send them. It might be a little daunting, but you could send them the AM General Facilities Report. The UK has their own documents that they also require lenders to fill out. They can be a little heavy. But it's a good starting point if you just need to know, like, oh, do you have a fire suppression system? Is it this or this? Do you have, like, an alarm system? Is it this or this? Who's the first person you call? Who has keys? That's a great template to start from, too, if you feel like you're, you know, going from ground zero. Yeah. Just want to throw and that I mean, in there. Honestly, a lot of the time you probably want to know those things for things like insurance purposes and stuff anyway. So it's actually kind of mm. just a good thing to communicate about. Another question, uh, this one from Vastari over in the UK. Um, Is there a role for external advisors in this, such as insurance professionals, surveyors, or independent consultants? I mean, I suppose um, sometimes we'll have like external training and stuff like that, and they'll just have someone else input. Um, Sometimes, you know, people, I know for a while we... Um, somewhere else I worked, we definitely had some people come around from a, what I guess I'll call a salvage company who help museum salvage objects um, after, after a disaster. And 
they came and gave us some talks and stuff like that. So I mean, consultants can certainly be involved in some in some fashion, even if it's just giving people training, more knowledge. Um, yeah, I don't see why not. There are experts as well who are um, really keen to share their knowledge as well. I'm thinking of um, a man whose name I have no memory of, and I'm really sorry. Um, he's uh, an expert. I know, sorry. Uh, uh, he's an expert in um, museum security. Jenny, you might know. Maybe. He's definitely oh, UK-based. He's yeah, very face, famous. Exactly, yeah. Uh, and he um, basically does uh, visits of institutions and, like in a sort of heist film, will go around and, and go, well, a thief could get in there, somebody could get in there, that's this far away from an alarm, so this could happen, and this case is like this, and that case is like that. And people who see, and it's, I guess it's the same way with um, fire safety professionals mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Definitely. They make the connections that you might not make um, and then they can give advice. At, I, I would hope different levels of expense as well. So don't be afraid to let people, if you've got funding to have pe- consultants come in to have a look, don't be afraid of that because I would hope that they would, they would give you like a scale yeah. of money to spend essentially or some ideas that would be costless. I suppose it is worth saying that it's like it can be a really good idea to have like an external consultant do something like run your tabletop exercise or something. Um, I mean, yes, that's cost, but but because it's an outsider, they will ask questions that you have never thought about, um, and that can be really valuable. Um, it depends on budget and all that stuff, but like, yeah, I, I, you should definitely you should definitely ask for help from out from the outside. Like it shouldn't all be in the organization if you can manage it. And I know that that's like a comes with a price tag and hassle and all that, but it, it is worth having external input. I think that, um, external input doesn't have to even happen every year. It could happen, oh, yeah. uh, you know, once as a, mm-hmm. as a way of, um, you know, updating your, your plan, you know, maybe every five years or something like that. And, uh, yeah. and just to, to make, um, and, and then it's a big predictable budgetable cost. Yeah. Um, likewise, I would think that our insurance agents would have a lot to say mm-hmm. about how we store the collection, where we store it, et cetera. I mean, I know many storage facilities don't get built unless the insurance agent, um, says, you know, this is, this is a safe site, you know, it's cleared of floods and, you know, flight paths, et cetera. Um, so, uh, yeah. So I would think that, uh, discussing that with your insurance uh, providers is super important as well. So. I was just going to add that I, uh, when we renewed our insurance this year, they required me to provide them with the facilities report of our building anywhere we have artwork. Um, we don't keep uh, collection objects at our offsite facility We keep other things there, but, um, back two chats ago or our last chat when we were interviewing um, Huntington T-Block and DeWitt insurance DeWitt providers. Stern, yeah. Thank you. Um, they mentioned, I mean, like you, you pay for that service. You have that coverage, pick up the phone and call your broker. Like what would they recommend? What would they say? You know, what uh, different scenarios I've, I've always found mine to be very helpful, but I don't always think to call them and ask for their input. And you're already, you're already a client and makes sense to do it. And the other thing outside of like having your local fire agency or your local police force come through, meet them, get to know them, get them familiar with your building um, and their insight. But 
if you if you have careers that come through your institution, and this is so this might sound bad. I don't mean to pillage for free advice from your colleagues. But if someone asked me for my input, I would be over the moon to share my knowledge with them that could be relevant. And if, you know, I remember working with a colleague who had really fantastic rigging experience. We were about to install a gallery that had a lot of large bronze sculptures and we didn't really rig that much. We did paintings for the most part. He was more than happy to share his insight with us. I mean, it, would, it could be the same if you're like, look, I've got this odd storage space. I'm always worried about, you know, preparing for an emergency what do you see when you see this? It might be an opportunity there to gain some insight you might not have had before, if they're willing to share it, of course. Yeah, and same, you know, there's no harm in having any, you know, someone else from another institution looking over, you, you can do a swap, look over each other's <laughs> emergency yeah. plans, um, see if there's anything that you cover, but they don't, or vice versa. If there's anything that you haven't thought about, you know, could just be worth doing. Mm. Yeah, I'm a big fan and advocate of pillaging for free advice. I think we're <laughs> uh, we're not just these sort of professional institutions that follow all the rules and rules and rules, shiny and everything. We're we're also a community, and even though some of us are uh, tiny, moneyless institutions, and some of us are huge national, ex- all the funding institutions, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that the individuals sort of in the wealthy museums kind of cover all the information and, and, and knowledge and stuff. And everyone moves around so much in this sector uh, all over the world that we're going to know people. We will have heard this person, heard of this person who's heard of this person. And so um, I think at the C word, we're always very keen on just ask people, don't worry about seeming unprofessional by emailing someone and saying, this is happening and I'm freaking out. Help me. Mm-hmm. because we well, all deal yeah. with the same stuff every day so and I'm always keen to just drop everything and help someone who says they need help <laughs> even if I'm working on something for my boss but like no I can pause that but let me answer this one colleague's question because I have yeah. an answer that might help them I'm a big people, are often, well. people are often kinder than you think so you know it's worth a go exactly yeah and I love form swap I mean we have that uh AM certainly offers that I think ARCS does too Robin we have a, a forum we have a document exchange. I was just going to say, I've been doing museum work since Google for 15, 16 years now. And I don't think I've ever created a policy or form from scratch. I have stolen <laughs> like, from everyone when I have done stuff. Cause that's what we do. Right. And that's fine. That's part of this community. And I think that's a, a great thing about it is, you know, we have such great sources out there and stuff that we can steal from and beg borrow. And, and like you guys were saying, like, I love, I'm a registrar slash collections person. I love talking to conservators because all of a sudden like your breadth of knowledge is like so much deeper than what you had before. So, um, yeah, it's, it's always been my experience too, but yeah, don't create from scratch. There's examples of everything yeah. <laughs> like out there. And Hey, if you created the new one, then you get to be the starter for the <laughs> line of ceiling. We'll name the document after you. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. We got another question in, uh, speaking of pillaging, uh, do you have any recommended resources or templates that people can reference when making their EMP, especially a template that covers more contemporary issues i guess aam and and uh is a, is a good place to start is that correct that's d plan which is an older thing but it's online um it's a template to create a disaster plan that you can just plug in your information and it spits one out eventually um casa has one too the council of state archivists has a template i think you can use for emergency plans at least stateside 
Um, like I said, I've stolen a lot of emergency plans from people and just cobbled together new ones. So um, that's happened quite a lot. Do you guys have, what's your big source for emergency planning over in the UK? Like what's the- Does one? UK Registrar Group have any of this stuff? Do you know? Honestly, I don't know, but I would always go to the Collections Trust, which is kind of a oh. centralized kind of thing for us. So I would go there. I'd check what the Museums Association has as well. Um, yeah, and ultimately for some things, ICON also has. Um, so that's our hmm. conservation um, organization uh, sometimes also has stuff um, on their website. So it's it's worth hunting around the kind of those usual places um, and see who has good templates and stuff like that. Um, I'm a great fan of cobbling as well. So I don't think I've ever gone with a template. I've just had like five plans, then merged them and then edited them. And then, yeah. <laughs> and then Frankenstein something and then it works. <laughs> yeah. And that's, and that's something that like, and actually you'll hear about this more next week during the coop live panel discussion, but you know, like these documents are supposed to be living documents. So we say beg, borrow and steal, but you're not supposed to just like copy it. It's not plagiarism. Don't copy it, put your name yeah. on it and be like, done. You need to still go through it and make sure it's going to apply to your institution. That's something to really think about as well when you're building these. And I would also add that, at least in the U.S., and maybe you can speak more to this, Robin, because I think you have experience with working with the connecting to collections community. And they've done webinars and they've done like a whole process of like, this quarter we're doing a collections management policy, this quarter we're starting emergency preparedness policies. And I think that was Florida-based. I don't know if that was throughout the entire U.S. Uh, it depends. You're going to make me wear my okay. other hat for a little bit. Sorry. I do work for Connecting to Collections Care, which is an FAIC uh, program. I do do coursework. Um, we don't have any courses yet this year. But yeah, you'll see featured ideas going throughout the year and a strain of uh, things all kind of following each other as we come up with the planning. So that is something you'll see often. And obviously, you know, right now is May. So it is May Day. And we'll talk about that more, I think, in a bit. But like, that's right now, we really talk about preparedness and making sure you have emergency plans. And there, you know, for a little bit, we were like, do we have to do this? Because we're like, literally in an emergency right now <laughs> like, it like what at a time day to day life but at the same time you don't want to stop it right because like when this covid stuff started happening someone on one of these panels had the good question of okay covid's happening none of us are there what happens if a leak link starts now like if your thing right. gets flooded and i know here in florida we're thinking like okay covid covid's almost done oh my god there's hurricane season like <laughs> <laughs> like, like, there was no break this There's year no break. so it's just it's this is stuff that's it's part it's unfortunately should just be part of your day-to-day -day operational stuff and i think that that's something you have to think about when you're building these plans is it should become part of every day it shouldn't be an unusual thing you should kind of have this emergency thing happening in the back of your head all the time so just have a good night's sleep and uh, <laughs> <laughs> on that happy note. <laughs> so, Well, I do want to, before we, that would have been a, that's a beautiful segue into COVID-19 and emergency preparedness. But before we get there, I did want to touch on salvage a little bit. Cause I feel like we often talk about preparing and planning and, and prep, 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 but do we often talk about recovering salvage? And that is still a very important part, especially if you experience an emergency firsthand. So I'm, I'm curious, from at least from a conservator's point of view, what are some of the immediate actions that professionals can take to help ensure a successful salvage operation? Well, that's another thing that you need to plan for. So again, loads of planning goes into it. Um, <laughs> my favorite thing about running salvage courses for lack of a better word where we just get stuff wet that's not real museum stuff but that's 
real enough um <laughs> and then people have to and people have to try to dry them out is that it takes an enormous amount of space it takes up so much more space than you ever thought you could even imagine from a bucket of stuff um so if that's going to be a whole gallery or like a whole store or something you can need so much space and it's all about like getting starting conversations way before you ever have to worry about anything like this like right well where's where's the f- football pitch that i can borrow <laughs> or like where's like you know like a warehouse that i can pinch for a while while we try to dry out our objects it's like all of the kind of planning that needs to go into that i mean that's stuff that you know you can do anytime and again it's about asking questions and um starting relationships with you know people that you may not normally talk to like it might be that's you might be part of a bigger organization and they might have a warehouse or, you know, a disused building that you can, that's secure enough that you can use it for like drying out stuff whilst salvage is ongoing and stuff like that. So it's conversations to have. Um, those are like the, definitely the things that people should be doing if they haven't already, because you're going to need to put that somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a big fan of, um, I saw one, I did some training once and the thing that came back from it was having a, um, a checklist of things to do, um, that is available and around. So in the event of an emergency, you're not relying on your brain. You're not relying on mm-hmm. leafing through your huge emergency plan. You've got a go turn off your, I can't remember the name for the stopcock. <laughs> And it was a really simple water shut off. Water shut off. Do this. Turn off the electricity. Do that. <laughs> you know, empty the building. Do all of these things, because we we will mind blank in a situation like that. I, I I've never had to respond to an emergency before. And um, also, it might not be you. You might not be anywhere near yeah, it. No, yeah. Yeah. Like, exactly. Yeah. To be able to follow those. So. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and my other thing actually was something that I thought of when we were um, talking about involving visitor services and other members of staff. Um, we've actually for you know general interest as well as emergency preparedness um i've done uh, quite a lot of object handling training with our um, visitor services team and everyone in the museum actually it's not so that they can then run off and go and do um you know handle stuff and if they don't you know have any need to it's that now i know that in the event of an emergency if i'm not contactable or if someone else um you know is closer then they I, I trust them essentially they can do it we're not in the building at the moment so my um colleague and I are furloughed so we're we're um not allowed to work essentially because the um uh, job retention scheme, etc. The people who aren't furloughed are the um, visitor services, and in, in the uh, well, in the event of an emergency, we would go, obviously. But they're the ones that are checking the building. They are the ones that would move open display objects um, immediately if something, if it was safe to do so. If there was something, if it was, they were being rained in on, and we trust them to do that because they've had that training and they've got the confidence they've done try they've done handling in front of us they know processes and stuff um so immediately having loads of people that you can trust and who feel confident to safely handle stuff um, it's a really good point because in a salvage mm -hmm. operation it's not like it 
like you're not going to be able to do a whole gallery. Like, no. That's not a thing. You're going to have to have help. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, if you've already given people a bit of a primer in how they can handle things, and that's really great, which is another reason why I love getting stuff soggy and then having people try mm-hmm. to handle that. Because they handle very differently when they're wet as opposed to when they're dry. So just like, that's just a really fun exercise to do. You can add it to the tabletops, right? Yes. <laughs> slightly more involved. <laughs> yeah. But it's true. I mean, I, one of the things about our plan that I think is really comprehensive, but I would like to change is salvage. Like if you, if you're dealing with wet paper objects, this is what you do. It's, but it's written in paragraph style. What I want to do is make it into a chart or a mm-hmm. bullet point because yeah. there's no yeah. way mm-hmm. that I'm going to sit there and like, I can barely read a paragraph as it is and pay attention. So I'm not going to be able to do it in an emergency yeah. situation. Yeah. And to your other point, I like to write things as if you, the individual reading it has no context, right? They're not a a professional, like a collections care professional. They need a little bit more information to understand what they're going to do. So I try and write things. um, So it's comprehensible to anybody coming off the street, because that's the way it'll need to be an emergency for you to delegate it out to somebody else or for you to do it yourself. If you are overwhelmed with a lot, which you would be if you're in a salvage operation. Yeah, definitely. Um, While I remember it, um, the Museum of London, I'm pretty sure this is correct, the Museum of London has some really good online resources for object handling and um, emergency preparedness. Um, And one of my favourite possessions is a thing that I got free from one of these courses, and it's it's an open-out pamphlet thing, sort of concertine is out, and there's loads of different squares with... If you're dealing with photography, what do you do? If you're dealing with ceramics, what do you do? And I, I am an objects conservator and I genuinely, if someone asks me, I go and look at the thing. <laughs> then you know that you've not forgotten anything when you're saying, okay, so you need to do this to books, but not this and, and all of that. So it's not, I think, you know, really breaking it down is one of the best things to do and Absolutely. posters and, you know, online courses and stuff. I'm pretty sure it's Museum of London. Yeah. Mm. I'm staring, I'm trying to remember where I put my old salvage wheel, which is the thing produced by... AI. Yeah, that's, that's what I was thinking of, salvage wheel. The salvage wheel. <laughs> it's in the house somewhere. A good, uh, a good follow-up question to the, to the salvage discussion, which is um, how do you deal with staff after uh, an event and after salvage in terms of, for example, trauma um, and... Um, I would, right, so controversially, I always say that it's people first, no, not objects. Everyone's always like, you're a conservative, you're going to be about the objects. And I, no, no, make sure everyone has a cup of tea and a blanket. I, <laughs> that stuff can wait, don't worry. Um, I mean, worry a little bit, but that's only a little bit. Like, the people are more important. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's a really good point. Um, and something that I think a lot of emergency plans sometimes leaves out is that you do need someone to look after people during the emergency and after the emergency. So you do need to think about those things as well. And that can literally be a designated person who makes sure food arrives at the like headquarters, wherever you're based, wherever people are convening during the emergency. Make sure people are fed, make sure people are watered, make sure they're warm enough, make sure they take breaks. There should always be a designated person for that. And that person can then also help liaise with uh, people afterwards and put them in contact with the right people. That can be, you know, um, counsellors, whatever you've got. You know, it, it really will depend on what kind of emergency you've had. But mm. it's so important to look after your people. Like, yeah, there's, there's stuff and the stuff is important. But the people, yeah, 
this didn't take more than Paraloid to fix. So maybe we can look after them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, Danielle uh, Bennett, who's the uh, president of ARCS, she works uh, in one of the uh, Smithsonian uh, institutions. And, you know, obviously the Smithsonian is gargantuan and she's one of, if not the point person for exactly what you're discussing. Like staff can call in and ask for uh, counseling help. They can ask for uh, what's the latest, what do we need to be worried about, et cetera. But, you know, it, it's, a, it's a major responsibility. But yeah, it is that exact thing that uh, a point person to... Um, get either correct information about because obviously there's a lot of misinformation uh, or just to just get, uh, you know, mental health help. So look after your people. It's important. Yeah. I'd be interested to hear from anyone who has experienced one of the really catastrophic emergency situations like the fire um, or, or well, any of these massive flood, massive fire um, to hear how that actually feels. I know that might be a sad conversation, but how it actually feels to see what you're responsible for being. And also what kind of support you either received or you wanted Mm, to receive. Possibly, you know, something to learn from. Are you directing that question at uh, a certain company in the UK that had a major fire? No, no. <laughs> Not specifically. <laughs> I mean, what, what, what that's just comes, a happy coincidence. What comes to mind for me is the Glasgow School of Art because that yeah. had, had two fires, um, which was yeah. uh, very unfortunate. Um, and yeah, then I don't know if you guys know this, but we had some very interesting flooding um, in November. So just the north of England was very badly hit by flooding just in general. So there were a lot of like really badly hit museums across the north for sure so i mean people will certainly have had very traumatizing times um Mm -hmm. but i hope those people were supported and if they were i'd love to know how you know because that's a good thing to learn from that's another thing that people should probably share at you know conferences and webinars and all sorts of things that we do about Mm. these things like what is a good way of supporting people after an emergency and what should we what should we all be doing because actually that's not super obvious sometimes no i think that's i've been to lots of um especially with the where i live um i've been to plenty of things showing how institutions deal with hurricane and hurricane disasters and kind of how their institutions reopen but you're absolutely right that human factor that people factor is not discussed as much beyond us sitting at the bar after the conference yeah trading horror stories of just, yeah. you know, <laughs> we had to do this. And then I walked in my institution and it was flooded and all the stuff that we had just put out got destroyed. You know what I mean? Like that. So I, I think, and hopefully through what we're experiencing right now, people will share those stories more um, on how they're kind of dealing with everything related to this. So I hope there's not yeah. an element of shame where people don't want to discuss what happened uh, to their institution because it was a negative way or they're not allowed to discuss it because it paints the institution in a negative light. Um, you know, if they somehow missed something that, it, that caused extreme damage, I don't know. I'm just throwing this out there because it seems like that could be a possibility. Um, I mean, yeah. and I suppose also adding to that, like there's also no shame in much that there's no shame in talking about mental health there's no shame in saying that you know i completely froze up like that doesn't make you a bad museum professional everyone reacts differently in an emergency i've had i've had times where you know i've reacted okay-ish in an emergency and times when i've reacted very badly and just gone 
uh, <laughs> which you know isn't great, but that doesn't make me a rubbish conservator, and it doesn't. Whoever you are out there doesn't make you a rubbish museum professional. Everyone reacts differently, and it's not even consistent. So you know, if if you had a bad time, don't be afraid to talk about it because it's okay. Um, we had one more uh, question, and uh, that was, uh, how often would you recommend? that you do drills, both announced and unannounced? Um, so we aim to do them every 18 months, but those are announced. Um, I don't know what a good recommendation is for unannounced. <laughs> I suppose it depends on how big a drill we're talking about. Um, I was about to say that. How disruptive will it be to the normal running yeah. the museum right. do you have to get the general public involved do you have mm. to take anything out of the museum museum do you have to you know what are we yes. talking about i suppose because i think a lot of people a lot of people get very excited about the notion of doing like an unannounced one like a really big one where it's like nobody gets to go inside and uh nothing's on as usual and then and then people go but what about school groups? And what about that wedding that we're doing? And what about, oh, oh wait, yeah, actually, this is a terrible idea. And there's a delivery coming out. Oh, this is going to take a while. It's not going to be unannounced at all. And it's like, yeah. So it depends on how big a drill you're doing. This actually sounds like a question for an outside consultant. Um, you know, if maybe, maybe it's something you do on your, your Monday that you're closed every week or whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, and, but even still, like, you know, you have a, a situation and everyone's off and they're, you know, away for the, for the weekend or what have you. And I mean, I guess that is the, the reality of the situation is, anyway. Yeah. So, um, but, uh, I think the fact that you would eat just to plan a drill, to make sure you, you have one, to make sure your staff is familiar with it. That's that right then and there is, is enough because everyone oh, will yeah. be familiar with it. And even if it's something simple, like this is just a fire drill, we're pulling all of our fire alarms, um, and we'll go off and we'll do that and then we'll come back in. I mean, cause that's a very, like we did that all the time in school for my, at least from my experience, but I, I have done it maybe four times in my professional experience. Mm. And I, I certainly wish we could do it, do it more. And if you are going to plan something more elaborate, um, that's more involved, like at my prior institution, they did a whole SWAT, rundown like an active shooter was on campus but they did it between the hours of like eight and nine before any public was there um staff was informed ahead of time and we were told like not to come in until nine to just avoid you know it's a little traumatizing when you're not used to seeing somebody with like an automatic weapon running around in full military or <laughs> police garb if you're not used to that it can be a little daunting probably not the way you want to start your day imagine if that's unannounced imagine the trauma there you show up and yeah. <laughs> I think that's well, one of those yeah. deals though, that you need to make it part of your planning cycle to have some of these, again, a safe way, exactly what you said, like before hours or after hours. And I worked in an institution one time that we had to shut down due to a mold remediation project. Like mm -hmm. we had to shut down the whole facility. So that was the time that we said, Hey, you know what? We're going to take down all the mannequins in the museum and we're going to see how long it's going to take us to do because for hurricane you would do that. So we kind of layered an, we had a, a, an emergency parfait. We layered the emergency <laughs> on top of each other where we were dealing with an emergency, but we were like, well, this is a good time. Cause we didn't, we weren't a facility that would close like often. We didn't have the Monday off to do cleaning. Like we were open all the time. So mm -hmm. we were like, well, heck we're closed. 
let's go ahead and pull down this place and like see how long it takes us and mm-hmm. you know how, how much of a prep we have and stuff. So I think the important thing is to build a culture where you can do those kind of things and that you don't get answered with, oh, but we're going to lose this, this, and this. It's like, I know, but we, we got to do some of this stuff to prepare ourselves for emergencies and when they happen. And I do think that's something important to learn from this COVID thing is that you know, no one planned for this, obviously. And this shows you that sometimes emergencies will just pop up and you've got to just deal with them. You know what I mean? And see how you can uh, handle it. So do those, do those run throughs if you can. And now we can all talk about how we need more funding for emergency planning because <laughs> everyone has experiences emergencies. So I like to think about that as well. Have you heard the conspiracies that this COVID-19 thing is just a big, um, Test. <laughs> uh, I've all sorts of conspiracies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, just gonna drop that nugget. <laughs> Let that simmer for a while. Well, it is. It's been just past an hour, so we probably should start wrapping it up. Um, but I did promise we talk about COVID nineteen a little bit and how it's impacted emergency preparedness. So I'm I'm curious to know what you all think might be some of the challenges institutions and professionals might face in the coming year. Um, in terms of implementing their emergency response and contingencies that they should be aware of preparing for in light of the fact that we are all dealing with like a global health crisis? Uh, Well, something that's come up in conversations with other museum professionals over here has definitely been that people worry about about staff availability. Like, Mm -hmm. is everyone going to be available in terms of, are they going to be healthy? Are they going to be okay to... um, stop shielding or isolating because you know if you have a long-term health condition here you know you're not supposed to um come in basically um you know so it's all these sorts of considerations of um how available will people be and once they're on site can you still keep a safe distance um can you still get the job done um even with people trying to keep distance and all that stuff um so that's that's been one that's come up a lot in in terms of like casual conversations with other other museum professionals for sure um not sure how to best mitigate for that one other than just keep just keep oh, everyone's number on hand <laughs> and keep keep ringing keep using your phone tree um in whatever way you can because hopefully you will be able to get enough people for it to be a safe situation yeah i'd say the same thing yeah make sure you're aware of people's individual situations are they who who can afford to get it the, mo- the easiest essentially and then who shouldn't at all be attending anything um health conditions wise um i think it would be a good idea to to be aware of how the key workers um i don't know if that's a is that that's a phrase that's used in the states isn't it keyword yeah essential essential, essential yes. okay um be aware of how the essential and key workers do manage because obviously people people who are working in shops, people who are working all over the place, they still have to do things. They won't be able to keep two meters apart at all times because that's not how life works. Um, so they will probably have safety procedures as well. And if we familiarize ourselves with how they manage to stay safe or stay safe as possible, um, then that's a good idea. Um oh. Also, I've heard uh, people suggest quite, you know, brilliantly that um, now might be a good time to make friends with other organisations around you. Because it might be if you're short-staffed um, that 
organizations around you could help pitch in. It might be a good time to make some friends with your neighbors um, and see who can safely help uh, if an emergency does come along. Um, and that could be something to build into your emergency planning. So, you know, if you've got other nearby museums, it might be that you can call on them um, to help you as well. And um, that can go for, you know, non-heritage organizations as well. Um, but yeah, so just to broaden your contacts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the one of the things that I'm, I'm, I worry about the delay. A lot of things are just taking longer. Like my Amazon shipments are just taking longer, (laughs) but I, it also makes me think, well, the vendors who am I always making contact with at the beginning of hurricane season, either maybe overwhelmed or maybe they're not operating given our current conditions. And at least in the United States, the last chat we just had was with shippers about how are they going to start opening up? What are the procedures they're taking? There's a lot like you had just mentioned close contact in the work that we do, especially when it comes to deliveries and pickups and packing of artwork. Um, so being in touch with them and still making sure those relationships are strong and knowing what their limitations may be, how it may impact you, as well as like, what are the things that you need to protect your staff in the current climate that they can either support or that um, you can support on their end? Because I just imagine, you know, if something like a hurricane comes through, and I need, I need air conditioned trucks because I need to get my things out of here. It's not safe anymore in our building. Are they going to be available and are they going to be comfortable coming to me in the, in the event of a disaster also while dealing with a pandemic? Um, but one of the things I will say in Florida that tends to always happen when a storm comes through, if it doesn't uh, envelop the whole state, uh, like it sometimes, sometimes does, uh, usually it'll hit one coast or the other. And oftentimes we communicate with colleagues like, hey, we're fine. What do you need? Do you need professionals? Do you need um, some type of conservation assistance, salvage assistance, et cetera? Uh, But that's a wonderful suggestion. All right. Are there any more questions we need to tackle, John, or can we wrap it up? I think you're still muted. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry, the... uh... The neighbor is uh, mowing our lawn. <laughs> uh, you know, registrars from home, registrars at home. Uh, yeah. No, yeah, I think uh, there are no more questions in the uh, in the chat. So let's go ahead and wrap it up. All right. Now, Robin, you had mentioned you wanted to touch on something really quick before we closed out. Yes. So uh, other hat. AIC, FAIC is running their May Day, which is part of this uh, hashtag May Day prep. It is a fun program about saving our heritage. Um, basically, if you go to the website, I'm going to put in the chat right now, you can <laughs> enter to win a free gift card from Gaylord. Um, you basically have to show that you've done an activity for May Day, be it you redid your emergency plan, you did something uh, to prep for an emergency. And if you go ahead and fill out the survey, you'll be put in the running for like I said, six gift cards from Gaylord. So, hey, everyone needs supplies. It's a good thing. Um, thanks to Gaylord for doing that. So, yeah, and please do it. Please participate um, to continue this very important program. So that was it. Yeah, and we will have a list of resources. We'll, we'll link to the um, Collections Trust that you both mentioned. We'll link to AIC and FAIC and all the relevant things we chatted today. And, of course, we'll link to the Seawood Podcast website as well so people can check you guys out. Um, so another relevant meeting meaning for May Day as we close out in the museum field is ICOM's International Museum Day. And it's meant to raise awareness of the fact that 
quote, museums are an important means of cultural exchange, enrichment of cultures, and development of mutual understanding, cooperation, and peace among peoples, end quote. So you and your institution uh, across the globe can celebrate this endeavor on May 18th, uh, at a time when many of us are looking toward the moment when we can safely come together as a community once more wanted to call attention to this little glimmer of light, light helping us to lead us out of the not so hopefully distant future when we can all come together again. So many thanks again to our wonderful guests, Jenny and Chloe from the Seaward Podcast. Remember to check out their show. They begin their seventh season. I can't believe that. Um, and of course, don't forget to download the Arts Chat Podcast when it comes out later in the week. Uh, you can find it, of course, on the website and everywhere you get your favorite podcasts. And that's my spiel. That's all I got. <laughs> and also stay tuned for all the other Arts Chat activities we have this month. On May 26th, we're, um, as many people requested, going to be discussing insurance with uh, our insurance sponsors, both brokers and underwriters. So you don't want to miss that, as well as some other special things. Uh, so stay tuned for important announcements. Um, hopefully they will blow your mind as they blew mine. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, stay tuned. I think that's it guys. Oh, right, fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks everyone. Be safe. Likewise. Bye. <laughs> All right. We're good. All right. Oh, well done everyone. Go wash Go your hands. Hand. 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 Hand.